Hello, and welcome to the Rediscovering Play podcast brought to you by Biba. I'm your host, Mike Rosen. As we've previously discussed, our mission at Biba and the goal of this podcast is to investigate, explore, and question what it means to play for kids in this modern era. Whether that's through building mobile games designed to get kids back out on playgrounds to get the physical activity that they need, or doing a deep dive into parenting tips in this new technological age, we are committed to rediscovering the idea of play for today's families. And what better time to be rediscovering play? While many of us are finding ourselves spending way more time inside and working from home these days, it's understandable that we might be trying to figure out how best to maintain a sense of normalcy and how to avoid going completely stir-crazy while cooped up indoors. This is especially true for parents who are dealing with the fact that their children are home, schools are closed, playdates and activities are limited, and on top of that, kids have questions about what's going on in the world and parents need to know how best to answer them appropriately. How do we maintain a sense of play in these trying times? How do we play with our children in a way that's both fun and safe? How do we maximize the limits of our confined spaces to make sure that our kids are still able to get the physical activity that they need? On this next series of episodes of Biba's Rediscovering Play podcast, we aim to answer these questions and more through conversations with parents, childcare workers, medical staff, and various other industry professionals to provide you with helpful tips and tricks, new perspectives, and fresh insights to help ensure that you and your family can stay happy, healthy, and active while we navigate this new current at-home situation. Join us while we rediscover play together. On today's episode of Biba's Rediscovering Play podcast, our guest is John Solomon. John Solomon is the editorial director of the Sports and Society program and oversees communications platforms, develops content, and manages select projects within Project Play. John is a journalist, storyteller, and communicator whose work supports the Sports and Society's program's mission to convene leaders, facilitate dialogue, and inspire solutions that help sport serve the public interest. He oversees the program's communication platforms, edits and writes reports, develops original content, and manages select projects within Project Play. In this episode, John talks to us about the ways that the COVID-19 pandemic has affected team sports among youth, the way that communities are starting to bounce back, and the impact that it's having on organized sport in general as the summer opens up and schools are starting to think about whether to return to organized team sports. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Here's John. Hey, John, thanks so much for joining me today. How are you doing? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm really excited to be able to get uh, your your thoughts and your opinions and to talk to you today because, you know, as 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 we've been talking about on this podcast in general, but, you know, the, the weather's getting better. Um, a lot of people are eager to get back out and, and participate in a lot of the summer activities and physical activity that they're used to to doing in terms of summer play. But, you know, obviously with with the state of things in the world and, 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 and all the sort of question marks that people have about what to do to stay safe and, and, and what is okay to do and what isn't okay to do uh, is, is changing all the time. And, um, you know, I, I'm really excited to be able to get your perspective and your thoughts on, on what's going on specifically in terms of youth organized sports and, and all that. And I know that you've been talking about that quite a bit lately. Yeah, no, absolutely. Glad to, glad to be here. Yeah. So you guys at the, at the Aspen Institute have actually been taking a pretty, um, pretty active stance on, on being able to communicate information that looks like with, you know, setting up the, the whole return to play organization. I know that you've been posting quite a bit about things that have been going on um, in terms of surveys and, and, and stuff like that around parents and their comfort levels. What have you, what have you sort of been seeing in terms of 
the, the, the thoughts that parents have about um, whether or not their kids should be returning to organized sports. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it varies. I think there's still a lot of concern. You know, we, we have a, a new uh, national survey out that shows um, that about 53% of parents of, of kids who play organized sports expect their child to resume sports activity at the same or higher amount when the current restrictions are resumed. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's actually down from when we did the survey the first time in early May when it was 70%. There's still a lot of, you know, discomfort um, and concerns about uh, children getting sick, you know, um, about coming back to sports or a parent or someone in the household getting sick. Um, So that's one set of parents. Then you do have other sets of parents who are, you know, wanting to come right back into sports, particularly the travel sports industry, which, you know, we caution a lot of public health experts caution really should be the last phase of youth sports to return. You know, depending on what local conditions look like on your ground, on the ground and, and what public health experts are saying, it really should be start with individual training, you know, then some group training and team practices with the right guidelines. Then when you do play games, keep it local, right? Um, so we're not uh, bringing so many different kids into so many, from so many different parts of the country into large gatherings and potentially bringing the virus we've seen a lot of uh, parents and a lot of uh, youth sports tournament providers and organizers who have, you know, rushed right back in because it's, uh, I mean, youth sports is an estimated $19 billion industry. Uh, this is these people's livelihoods at stake. Um, and so that's, it's just a, a, it's a, it's a cautionary tale. We all want our kids to be playing sports again, but we want to do it in the, the right and responsible way. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, like you mentioned, that the results that you guys are seeing in terms of parental surveys are, are very different now in in July than they were in May and I think a lot of that is to do I would imagine with the fact that you know a lot of states a lot of provinces depending on what it was reopened and now we're starting to see a little bit of a bounce back in places like Texas and a few other places where cases are increasing significantly and I think that people's sort of you know bullish confidence is maybe in certain places being being shaken a little bit and people are realizing that you know as much as we're 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 so quick to want to go back to a quote unquote normal state um, you know, it's, it's, it's going to have to be baby steps as opposed to like a full board, you know, both feet in kind of situation. Yeah, no, I think so. I, I wish more people took that perspective. <laughs> I don't know if enough people are, and that's kind of why we're, I think in the situation that we're in, you know, mm-hmm. as a country in so many other countries doing so well at stemming the tide of cases and reducing to a very small number and able to go back into some sense of normalcy. And, um, a lot of our States reopened without, reopening through the, the exact and specific criteria laid out by health experts and scientists of when you can reopen and when you can't. And I think you're right about the survey results that, that we're seeing. You know, the first time we put the survey out was in the, the first week of May um, for parents' uh, reactions. And, you know, even then it was about half of them were fearful of, you know, them getting sick or their child getting sick. Now it's more like, you know, 60%. And if you think about it in early May, we were, we were all, a lot of this country was ready to just, let's get, get back to normal. That's sort of, I think, around the time reopening started to happen in some states, really then probably started peaking as you get to like Memorial Day and people really getting out there. And now this latest survey we did was throughout the month of June, um, towards the end of June. And so that's, that is to your point where we're starting to see some rises in, in some of these states that previously didn't have, weren't really feeling the impacts directly, right? So in the early months, it was largely, you know, New York, um, you know, New Jersey, Connecticut, you know, some of the Northeast. It, 
California. But if you were in other parts of the country, particularly say like the Southeast, Southwest, you weren't feeling the brunt of it. Now you potentially are seeing it and understanding, okay, no, this is, this is pretty serious. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because I guess one of the other, one of the other stats that um, was mentioned in one of the articles that you had posted was, I guess, a question, a survey question that was posed to parents about their children's activity levels during this time. And I think it was something like, you know, close to 70% of parents reported that their child's physical activity level had decreased significantly during this whole lockdown, um, which is a scary statistic in itself, but also sort of explains why, you know, I think a lot of parents were so eager to get their kids back outside and back playing and being physical again. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think it was, I think you're probably referencing, there was a University of Wisconsin study um, that, that surveyed adolescents in Wisconsin, about 3,000 adolescents in the month of May, and their physical activity was down about 50%. And they also think about 65% of them were showing signs of anxiety. And um, a, a good number of them were showing signs of depression as well. So it's, it's A, the loss of physical activity, and then B, just that social and emotional health and well-being and, and the those benefits that we know from playing sports and just being around teammates and, you know, competing and, you know, just being outside and having fun and taking your mind off what is a really stressful time for all of us, you know, not just kids, but for adults. And the kids, especially, I think, as they return to school in the fall, whatever return to school even looks like, depending on where you are in the country, um, I think it's going to be really important for coaches to recognize these signs. Uh, coaches are gonna be in many ways sort of on the, on the front line because they will be dealing with, with youth who are coming back with a lot of challenges, um, some emotional baggage. Some of them, um, unfortunately, are, are in homes cooped up for long periods of time that aren't good homes. You know, there could be violent behavior from parents or adults in there. And coaches, of course, aren't trained necessarily to be psychiatrists or psychologists and to deal with that. But it's going to be a huge role for them. You know, it's not just going to be about winning games and trying to coach up skills and get an, you know, a college scholarship opportunities for, for athletes. Like you're going to have to like be a mentor. You're going to have to be like a friend and be able to just to communicate and talk with them. And I think recognize when there are serious red flags and then what to do with that and to potentially then um, get that child to an appropriate uh, uh, mental health service provider who can help them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially this sort of zero to 100 aspect if, you know, you're in a situation where whether it's just your siblings or just yourself and your parents or whatever it might be and, you know, not having a lot of opportunity to interact with other people and now you're in a situation where you have a team of, you know, 10 people that you're now interacting with plus you're playing against a team of another 10 people or whatever it is depending on the sport and it's just, it's it's a lot, right? And that adjustment is 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 not going to be an easy one for any anybody, but especially the way that that could manifest in different sort of sports and and, and, and you know the 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 way that play sort of rolls out in those in those contexts. Yeah, no, absolutely, and 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 the physical health of kids will have to be uh, uh, considered strongly considered too. And by that I mean I'm not talking about COVID nineteen. I'm talking about just the typical injuries and, or heat illnesses that occur in sports, particularly here in the summertime. Um, to your point, zero to 100 is a really big concern of a lot of doctors out there. We're already seeing some anecdotal stories. Um, there's some articles in St. Louis of some doctors saying since youth sports have returned, they're seeing a ton of you know elbow and uh, shoulder injuries coming in with kids playing multiple game baseball games over the weekend. You know the, the tournament um, approach, which is what it typically was pre-COVID-19, which wasn't good either. But it's even worse during COVID-19 because 
these kids are going from no activity for many, many months to boom, you're going to try to put them right back into games and, and that many games each week. It's uh, it's a real risk of overuse injuries, um, of heat illness, and then, you know, potentially of burnout too, if these kids are playing too much. Right. And then this sort of added issue that was sort of the concern for a lot of the stuff initially, which is that, you know, it's, it's busy. It makes hospitals and medical facilities that much busier because you're dealing with other injuries that aren't necessarily, you know, COVID-19 related. And then there's potential exposure and all those other things, which sort of, you know, again, potentially exacerbates the problem that much more. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's interesting also, I think that, because you guys have been looking at a, at a variety of data sources, which I think is uh, has been really interesting to be able to see. It's just so how thorough you guys are being, whether it's other academic institutions or even looking at um, data from different apps like TeamSnap and a few others that I think were referenced talking about what they're seeing in terms of data tracking and, and how quickly people are returning to to these different team sports in different areas and, and which sports are affected more than others. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so Team Snap, we did a story on here recently showing that, um, you know, their data on their platform is showing significant returns to youth sports in almost every state around the country. And the way the Team Snap looks at it is they're comparing it um, in terms of the, the, the planned activities for people right now, such as, you know, regist- registering a team, you know, registering for an event, um, compared to what it was like last year at this time. And in almost every state across the country, they're at about 100%, meaning it's about the same as what it was a year ago this time. There are a couple states you know, that are down compared to a year ago. Uh, New Mexico is really down. You know, they're at 30% you know, compared to you know, 100% what they were a year ago. And um, that's in part uh, because of they've had outbreaks. And now you know, New Mexico just announced that they won't be playing high school football and soccer uh, this fall. They're hoping to try to move it to the spring, but, you know, they don't know. So I think they're, they're probably, I think the first state to really uh, announce a decision when it comes to fall high school sports. And I expect more will as well. The team snap data also showed Maine and North Carolina and Oregon were a couple other states that were much lower right now than they were a year ago. Mm -hmm. And like you mentioned, I mean, it's, I would imagine it's expected that a lot of other states and and schools are going to take similar approaches, especially with sports like, you know, football that require a ton of different people and like a similar dressing room where it's hard to be distanced from each other. And the nature of the sport itself is that you're lined up close with other people and there's a ton of physical contact that's happening compared to a sport like baseball where you might be closer, but there is a little bit more of that sort of built-in distance. Yeah, I mean, you know, one thing we've seen in our parent survey data results as well is that during the pandemic, we're seeing some new sports that are emerging in terms of um, what kids are doing the most right now since the shutdown happened. So sports that weren't previously in the top 10, but are now in terms of hours spent per week are things like, you know, tennis, golf, bicycling, right? These are socially distant sports that are pretty easy to do and to return to. Um, tackle football has, of course, declined compared to where it was pre-pandemic in terms of the number of hours. Flag football is now um, more popular, uh, being used more than uh, playing, being played more during the pandemic than tackle football. I think you're right about football. It's to me, it's I mean, it's obviously one of the most hard, most difficult sports to bring back during a pandemic. And you know how high school and youth football handle this, I think, will in part be, play out of what happens in the with the NFL and college football. Um, you know, we did just see the Ivy League announce no fall sports, including football. And I think that was a very significant development. And I think we'll see some other colleges also probably not play uh, as well in the fall. Um, but I, I 
I do think there will be some states and communities that will play high school and, and youth football. It's just, it's embedded in their culture. It's so important to them. Um, and there are people in those communities who are less concerned about the virus than others may be. Or, and to be fair, they could also have much lower transmission rates than other communities as well. But there are many in the Southeast where we're seeing higher rates who are very passionate about football. And I think they're going to they're going to do everything they can to play. Mm -hmm. And there's also, like you said, I mean, there's there's the physical side of team sports, but then there's also sort of the the emotional and and um, you know the the team dynamic side of things that are so important. So you know, it's great when when a sport like tennis is being picked up more, but it doesn't it doesn't have that additional element to it that um, you know some kids thrive in, um, some people thrive in. But again, it ha has real value in terms of you know playing out team dynamics and managing people's opinions and working together to be able to accomplish these things, which, you know, is an understandable reason as to people, why people wouldn't want to lose those elements and those aspects of those sports as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. But there are also, you know, socioeconomic factors into this in terms of who plays what sport, right? We know that football tends to be played uh, more by uh, people from poorer households, um, uh, more African-Americans, you know, as well. Um, and, and for many people, uh, playing football is viewed as a potential ticket out of a difficult um, family life, a difficult, difficult situation that maybe it does get you that college scholarship you know, down the road. Maybe you do have those pro dreams. That's not what um, we are about, you know, at Project Play. We want to try to promote, you know, physical activity for all kids. And it's, you know, less about the winning and the competition. But, you know, realistically, that is a very real factor in terms of you know why people play certain sports and i and i think that will probably in some ways only continue even even during a pandemic because it's it is still an, an avenue to potentially a better life mm -hmm. and if you're on that trajectory and now all of a sudden like you know the state of professional sports is in flux at least temporarily then like what is the recruiting and drafting process going to look like for that and if you're not playing then you don't have people who are looking at what you've got going on and you know that's that's potentially a troublesome and, and scary reality for a lot of people i'm sure yeah no, absolutely i mean right you know right now the ncaa they have um, they've banned their college coaches from being on the road recruiting. I think it's through the end of August. They keep extending it um, to protect, you know, the coaches, of course, and a lot of them who are older and they could have underlying health conditions, but it could also try to protect communities at large. So you're not doing these huge, you know, showcase type events, you know, or AAU type events in order to be seen by recruiters. So on the one hand, I think the NCA is doing a service to the youth sports community by doing this because it's potentially going to limit some of the spread of the virus. If you, if there are no college coaches there to see you, do you really need to do these big events? You know, cause you're not, you can't be seen and scouted on the other hand. Yeah. If you're a high school athlete who's entering your junior year or senior year, this really stinks right now for recruiting purposes. Like if maybe if you're an elite athlete, you're already, you've been recruited, you've been seen and you're going to continue to get those letters and that communication but if you're not and you're planning on this summer, you know, your junior year, or maybe your senior year being the time to, to really get noticed, um, the, the, this could be it for you for playing mm -hmm. sports. That's really, that's really difficult. And even from a fairness and sort of, you know, equality perspective, like you mentioned states like New Mexico and, you know, Oregon and these places that are choosing not to, and maybe it's because there's a, a larger spread or just because they're, they're being more cautious around these things. If you're an athlete in one of those places and recruitment's still going on everywhere, but you're just getting overlooked because of your geographic location. I mean, that, that also poses, you know, further complications and further challenges. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, this this summertime is the time to to be seen in a lot of sports. It's not necessarily the best model and approach, but it's just sort of how it is. That's become in the last 10, 20 years in youth sports, particularly in a sport like basketball. This is the big time of year when you're playing in the AAU summer tournaments. Um, This month, right about now, would be the time when there'd be the uh, Peach Jam tournament held by Nike in South Carolina. Nike canceled its whole grassroots basketball circuit, you know, for the whole summer, you know, because of COVID. Um, so it's just fewer opportunities to be seen. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the interesting thing, like you mentioned, is like, I think it's, 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 it's abundantly clear to a lot of people that this kind of play and that um, team sports and, and giving people the opportunity for athletics in, in all these different ways is incredibly important for, for all the reasons that we've listed. But the challenge is because, you know, the, the, the coronavirus itself COVID-19, um, there's still a lot of questions as to how transmission looks and how serious it's going to continue to be and if there's going to be second phases and all this other stuff. And people are still trying to figure that out and also trying to figure out how it's possible to get people to return to these team sports because there is sort of this timeliness aspect to it. But I think because of that timeliness, it's it's forcing people to, to, to say like, you know, we don't, we don't have time to figure out the perfect solution, so let's just move forward anyway, which could be a short-sighted approach or could end up playing out you know, no problem, but it, it's, I, I don't think that, that there's enough time, it seems, for people to really sort of think about all the implications of these things and, and are just sort of rolling forward and rolling the dice and seeing what happens. No, no, I, th- I think you're right. I mean, I think another another interesting question is going to be in terms of sustainability long-term of, of youth sports. I mean, one thing is we want to provide a more community-based, sustainable model. Um, so one question that we've asked, you know, parents in this youth sports survey is, you know, what have they missed the most about their child regularly participating in sports? And by far, number one, what they've missed the least, I'm sorry, they've missed the least, not the most, what they've missed the least is costs. And 36%, you know, mm-hmm. followed by the travel, 18%. Uh, extra logistical responsibilities, 15%. The time spent on the sport, 15%. So all of this sort of suggests that parents may be ready for a more affordable and local sports experience but they have to be provided a quality alternative. So, you know, what's happened in youth sports over the past 10 to 20 years is it's become highly privatized. A lot more travel sports and club and, you know, elite sports and higher costs and more time spent in games and practices and traveling on the road. And and parents are, you know, some of them anecdotally, you talk to them and during this pandemic, they go, wow, we actually have some time to sit down and have a dinner together as a family and see each other instead of, you know, being out on the road, you know, uh, practices and games four or five nights a week. Um, but you, you ask them, okay, would you, do, do, do you think you'll go back to your normal life when the pandemic ends and the, the chaotic youth sports life? And a lot of them say they don't want to, but they probably think so, yes. And that's in part because they don't want necessarily the, uh, the recreational league that's not competitive enough. And it's maybe some of the kids who are, you know, uh, just there to be there. Um, but they also don't want this either, what they're stuck in, but they're stuck in this rat race and they can't really get, feel like they can get off because if they get off they're they're but they feel like they're going to lose opportunities and chances for their child. It's, it's sort of just this arms race like mm-hmm. we see in a lot of society. 
Well, that's sort of the interesting macro takeaway that's happened through all of this. Like you said, it's sort of a bit of this reprioritization um, for families and for everybody, right? But the idea of, you know, we're not running around to sports all the time, or I don't have these meetings in the evening, or I'm not at the office all day, so now we're able to have, you know, all of our meals together as a family and recognizing how important that that is. And like you mentioned, you know, there's there's huge costs and it's a huge commitment for for parents and for children if you're playing, you know, sports at a at a even at a semi-competitive level to be able to do all the running around, to be able to make it to practices and to games. And if there's travel involved and all that sort of stuff, it's just it it's 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 expensive and it's challenging. And I think like you said, it's an interesting situation where people are sort of recognizing that they prefer this sort of new normal to an extent in terms of cost savings and all that. But, you know, there, there needs to almost be an alternative that, that gets structured to be able to allow for, for the best of both worlds, like you said, you know, where there, there doesn't need to be so many, so many costs associated with it. There doesn't need to be so much running around, but it's still at a competitive level or still able to operate in sort of this community, local sort of grassroots way. Um, where everybody's kind of getting the things that they need. And the idea of returning to normal, I don't think it's going to be the same normal that it was before, you know? And I think that um, in many cases, that's probably a, a, a good thing because this has given us an opportunity to take a step back, reevaluate where things have, what they've turned into, like you said, over the last 15, 20 years, and to ask the questions about whether that that is or isn't the best or most appropriate way to move forward. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I, and I think, you know, it's a, it's a good time hopefully for a little bit of a pause maybe for some of those parents in the arms race and the rat race and understanding, hey, is this, is this really the best um, experience for my child? And that's our number one strategy at Project Play is ask kids what they want. What do they want out of their, their experience? And you know, a lot of research you know, through academics and what we've done as well has shown, I mean, the number one thing that kids want out of their sports experience is just having fun and being with teammates and friends. Like that, it's pretty simple. <laughs> they, they wanna have fun. They want to be with friends. I mean, winning ranks so much lower, you know, on, on the list. Um, they like competing, of course, as well, but it's about enjoying themselves. And we've created, in some cases, environments where um, kids are treated like mini adults, as if they're like mini professional athletes, and they're training, you know, nonstop, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12 months a year, four or five days a week, you know, all in the same sport. Um, they're being expected to have skills and perform at, uh, at rates and, and skill levels that um, just you wouldn't expect and you shouldn't really expect depending on their, their age. And so, you know, we, we're, we may be creating the best eight, nine, 10 year old athletes, but then what happens to them at 16, 17, 18 years old and then throughout their life as well? Are they still physically active throughout life? Do they still enjoy sports? Do they have are they healthy enough to still participate in sports? Do they have injuries because they're playing too much? Um, it's, uh, you know, hopefully it's, a, it's an opportunity to sort of, you know, rethink, you know, what we want out of youth sports and let kids play on their own terms, you know, and giving them different opportunities to play on their own terms, such as just playing outside and reintroducing free play. You know, it's really such a lost art in our society <laughs> for many years. Um, some parents are just worried about kids playing outside in neighborhoods and some justifiable reasons, depending on where they live and what the crime looks like. And then some kids are just so overscheduled, they can't just play pickup sports with their friends outside on their own. But, 
you know, maybe this is a chance to, to let them, uh, you know, find sports in their own terms. Mm-hmm. And like you said, a reminder that, you know, from what you're hearing from kids is that the main reason why they want to get into this is for fun, right? And that's not to say that, that not every kid is still continuing to play for fun, but it turns into like, you know, uh, this sort of potential business side of it sort of changes the dynamic a little bit. And I think for people to recognize like, you know, this is just about having kids playing and having fun and, and interacting with other kids and being physically active and getting all the things that they need. And, you know, I think it's universally understood that play is incredibly important. And, you know, this is a good opportunity to sort of, like you said, take a step back, ask some of those questions that we hadn't been asking and see if there's ways to sort of, you know, reevaluate and, and, and make some adjustments to, to the, whether it's the, you know, the community focused local side of things, or even just the way that the emphasis is put on these so that, that kids are getting what they need and what they want. Yeah. I mean, one thing I would, I would challenge parents to do is, um, you know, every now and then watch, watch your kids play video games, right? Um, see what that experience is like for them. I say that um, recognizing that a lot of adults, myself included at times, we bemoan um, video games. My kids 11 and 13 and play it. And I think they play it way too much. You know, sometimes we'd love them to, you know, be outside more. Um, but there's a reason that video games are so popular. The people who make video games have created a very kid centric experience. I mean, if you think about video games, it is customizable. So you could play with friends, you know, who are somewhere else you're able to, you know, play and interact. You can customize it based on the level that you want. You know, if you're, just a beginner, okay, start at a lower level, right? Or if you're you know, much better, you're increasing at different levels, right? It's an appropriate development. Um, perhaps most importantly, you don't have an adult, whether it's a parent or a coach, looking over your shoulder and screaming for you to do something every single time during the video game, like we see in youth sports, you know, shoot, pass, you know, kick, come on, swing, you know, imagine, imagine uh, being at work and having your boss scream, type, you know, where's the memo every single time, you know, and that's, that's sort of what we do in youth sports as we, as parents and coaches, as we're watching them play, like, it's just not, their brains can't function like that. They would just freeze and it would just be frustrating. Um, but video games are a very enjoyable experience for them. And I think youth sports can learn a lot from, from that and just take some methods from it and understand um, if you make it kid focused, uh, it's more likely that they're going to you know want to continue to play it. Mm-hmm. It's a super interesting point. We've sort of talked about that on, in a few other episodes of this podcast is that, you know, I think a lot of parents and a lot of people have just taken this idea of like, you know, screens and video games being a, a negative thing. Um, but because of the lockdown and, and, and because of, you know, kids spending way more time at home and there not being opportunities for physical activity and, you know, probably more screens in terms of, you know, balancing people's times and trying to make sure that they're happy and, and just it's it's an activity to be able to do, I think has forced a lot of people to recognize that, you know, screens or no screens is not necessarily a black and white conversation, but there's more gray to it, you know, like there are, there are good video games, there are bad video games, but like you said, there are things that can be learned from them to see like, okay, well, what is it about these things that are, that are getting kids so excited and so engaged and wanting to, you know, have that sticky factor that make them want to continue to come back and keep doing those. And how can those learnings be applied to things like, you know, whether it's the education system or physical activity or team sports or whatever it might be. And again, if there is a silver lining to this whole thing, it's that, that it's, it's, it's an opportunity to sort of reevaluate and, and rethink and, and maybe change the approach to, to be able to make these things more conducive to, to what everybody wants, what everybody needs. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's, so that's our hope at least. <laughs> cool. Well, again, I think 
what you guys are doing at Project Play and, and everything you guys are doing at the Aspen Institute, I think is really interesting, really great stuff. And again, like we mentioned, is, is changing from month to month and interesting stuff that, that, that I think people should be, should be thinking about and, and good questions that you guys are bringing up for how to sort of rethink and reevaluate these things and how to adapt and how to make these changes going forward to make it something that's more sustainable and more inclusive um, and healthier for everybody. Um, so if people are interested in learning more about what it is that you guys are doing, uh, where should they go to, to, to check that out and look into that? Yeah, sure. So our website is um, www.projectplay.us, projectplay.us. And you can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter um, the, uh, at, at Aspen Inst Sports, A-S-P-E-N-I-N-S-T Sports. Cool. Great. Well, I mean, I really appreciate everything that you guys are doing, and I really appreciate you taking the time to to be a part of this conversation and to to chat today. And I'm excited to see how things unfold, and excited to see how you guys are able to help influence things for the better. Yeah. No. Thank you, and thank you, Mike, for I mean, having the, this conversation. It's an important discussion, so I appreciate you bringing us the portrait. Great. Thanks so much for being part of this. Yep. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Biba's Rediscovering Play podcast with our guest, John Solomon. If you'd like to follow up more with the work that John's doing with the Aspen Institute and at Project Play, you can follow him on Twitter at John Solomon Aspen, and you can follow the Aspen Sports Institute at Aspen Inst Sports. To find out more about the Rediscovering Play podcast and listen to all the other episodes in our Summer of COVID series, you can check us out at rediscoveringplay.fm and on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks so much again for listening. And thanks for rediscovering play with us.